Welcome to Drop Everything Podcast number 83. I'm your host, Dan Holspin. And on this podcast, my special guest is Billy Prudhomme. Not Prudhomme, like I say in the beginning, but Prudhomme. Before we start, though, let's thank our sponsor. We only have one sponsor, but when you have a good sponsor, that's all you need. My sponsor for the Drop Everything Podcast is the IJA, International Jugglers Association. To find out about this great group of jugglers, go to juggle.org. If you have any comments about the podcast or future guests you want to recommend, please send me an email at danjuggle at gmail.com. All right, drop everything. Get ready to listen to Billy Prudham. Welcome to Drop Everything Podcast number 83. My special guest, Mr. Billy Prudhomme. Hi, Billy. Hey, Dan. How are you? I'm fine. I'm fine. Now, what's it been, about uh, 25 years since we saw each other, something like that? Uh, I don't remember. It's been a while, though. It's been uh, a I didn't while. even really think of, Yeah, yeah. Maybe I feel like I've seen you since I listened to your podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I think we met once, but let's go back even before that, like your childhood and where you grew up. Where, where were you born and what, what do your parents do for a living? Uh, I'm a Louisiana guy. Uh, I tell people I grew up in South Louisiana, but I got tired of the, the heat, the humidity, and the hurricanes, so I moved to South Florida. <laughs> <laughs> the city I grew up in is Lafayette, Louisiana. I lived there until I was about uh, 25. Then I, I moved to New Orleans for about 15 years. My parents are Cajuns. I'm a Cajun. I know you say Prudhomme, but we always said Prudhomme. Big Prudhomme. crude, little dumb. Yeah. Kind of like freedom or random or something okay. like that. But almost everybody I know is Prudhomme. So I got no real problem with that. And what's it mean to be a Cajun? What's that mean to be a Cajun? Uh, well, the Cajun people settled in South Louisiana a few hundred years ago uh, after getting kicked out of Nova Scotia. And we were French-speaking pe uh, people and uh, learned how to make some great uh, Cajun food, uh, develop Cajun music. You might be familiar with those. That's how a lot of the world knows. Is a Zydeco Cajun music? It, it is very similar. It's in the same family, Cajun and Zydeco. Uh, it's a little bit different instrumentation, but same spirit, some great Cajun and Zydeco music. One of the first places I ever juggled that was a Cajun music festival after I decided I wanted to try and uh, do some shows. But uh, my dad worked in the uh, oil fields as, uh, as like natural gas uh, companies. And my mom did a lot of things. She was a school secretary, and she even had her own uh, nursery school in our house for a while. And was there any uh, entertainment in your background, any performers? or? I do have a brother, uh, older brother, who, when he was young, uh, did some magic. And he was an Elvis impersonator in junior high. <laughs> but uh, nobody in the business, really. That was as close to it as uh, I got. And it was sort of unlikely that I... Uh, would end up being a, a full-time professional entertainer. When, when you were a kid, what were your hobbies? What were your interests? And when was the first time you saw someone juggle? Um, you know, I'd seen some people in circuses when I was a, a kid, and it didn't really make that much of an impression. It just seemed like something I would never, ever be able to do. So I didn't really want to try. <laughs> I did things like skateboarding and throwing the Frisbee and playing ping pong. And I usually got tired of it after a while. And when I discovered juggling, one of the cool things was that you could always add one more ball <laughs> or change props. And it was a whole new world. I, I came to juggling really late. I, I was 20 when I started to juggle for the first time. And um, I never really got bored with it because there was always some new challenge. And how did you learn to juggle? Was it from a book or someone show you? What was your learning process like? I did learn from a book. I learned from that uh, juggling from the Complete Klutz book. And... The reason I learned was that I, I saw three very entertaining juggling acts in a real short period of time. I don't know if you remember that show. It was called That's Incredible. Of course. Yep. Kathy Lee Crosby and John Davidson and Fran Tarkington. Yep. In fact, they had the first chainsaw juggler was on that show. Uh, James oh, Marcel. Really? Yeah. Many years ago. I missed him, but I did see Anthony Gatto. And Anthony, it was his second appearance. And I think he was eight years old, and I couldn't believe my eyes. And then I saw Michael Davis on Saturday Night Live, and I couldn't believe how funny he was. And at my university, there was a, a small circus, 
called the Royal Liechtenstein Circus. And they would travel all over the, the country. And they came to my, uh, my university and I saw them and they did some club passing and they did uh, like the run around takeaways with a hat, and, mm-hmm. you know, with the balls. Sure. And being a non-juggler at the time, I thought it was the most incredible thing I'd ever seen. I thought they must have been working together for decades to be able to do those tricks. <laughs> so I guess that showed me a non-juggler what juggling looked like to a non-juggler. I, and, and so that gave me the impression that people who don't juggle, they don't really know what they're seeing. <laughs> Because the, the club passing they did was a basic uh, three three ten thing, sure. and uh, the run-around run takeaways were not actually that hard, but it looked like so incredible. So I see these three acts in a short period of time, and I was in the bookstore looking for the uh, for actor Christmas sales, and I saw the book, the Klutz book with the three beanbags, and I went, oh, well, I'm a Klutz. I'll try <laughs> it. So I, I think it was great marketing for that title because that was way before the For Dummies series came out. And I think that book taught a lot of people how to juggle. Yeah, worst worst beanbags ever, though, right? The, the square ones. Oh, yeah, they were square, and they were filled with uh, walnut shells. And I could juggle them, and they wouldn't roll that far when you drop. So that was a plus. And I juggled them so much, I wore them out. And I didn't know where to get any more, any more uh, props. So I had to go buy another book just for the beanbag. <laughs> and you were learning just the tricks from the book, or were people showing you other variations? Because it just has some simple three-ball stuff, right? Just from the book, because I had nobody to talk to. I didn't know anybody who juggled except one guy. I went and found him, and I showed him what I had learned, like, in, you know, in a month. And um, it had surpassed anything he had ever done, because he did magic, and he did mime and balloons, and he did unicycling and some juggling, but he hadn't focused on the juggling. His name was Jody Reynolds, so he was the only guy I knew. So I went and found him, and he started practicing juggling a lot more because of what I had done. And then, you know, we started practicing together. And when you went to college, what were you planning to do, you know, before juggling came into your life? Did you have sort of a goal, another another job path in your in mind? I had this vague uh, notion of, uh, well, I guess I'll be a businessman, and it didn't really <laughs> appeal to me at all. And my, my major was communications. It was public relations. And most of that involved writing and uh, campaigns and things like that with a lot of deadlines and a lot of pressure. And uh, once I learned to juggle, I was like, I don't think I want to get into this other stuff. So um, probably a year, year and a half after I learned how to juggle, I thought I'm going to be a juggler, which sounds kind of insane. It was a total (laughs) hard left. It was really not on the schedule. I didn't have... uh, a big vision of what I wanted to be anyhow. And did you search out uh, professional jugglers? I, I, I read in my notes that you went to the Harlem Globetrotters and saw Barrett oh. Felker and Vince Bruce, the famous rope and whip act. What was that like? And, and what do you think about that? Uh, I'll tell you how that came about is that I saw a juggler at a Cajun music festival and I saw him doing street shows and I didn't know where to get props and I didn't know where to meet any other jugglers. And I was just alone in it. And so I went up, I asked him all these questions, and he told me about the IJA, and he told me about a book he had called uh, The Art of Juggling by Kim Binge. And so I immediately went out, and I, I ordered the book, and it was so much more thorough than the Klutz book. It, it covered everything. It also talked about the IJA, so I, I joined them, and that opened up the entire world of juggling. It, it was where to get the props, and who was doing what, and there was a little section, I think it was called The Entertainers, in the back of Juggler's World magazine. And it, uh, you know, it showed who was touring where. And I saw that the Globetrotters had a juggling act or two. And I knew the, that the Globetrotters came to my hometown every year in January. And I knew I, I might not be able to get two front row seat tickets, but I knew I could get one. So <laughs> I, got a, I got a ticket. Because I thought Barrett was going to be the uh, halftime act. And I went to see the Globetrotters. And he was actually the pre-show guy. And he was doing juggling like I had never even imagined. It was amazing. And it was to music. And he was all over the court. And I, I couldn't believe everybody was just coming in with their popcorn and not hardly even looking. <laughs> and I was going out of my mind. I was standing up and screaming at what he was doing. And in the middle of his act, he looked up at me and kind of, Gave me a, hey, dude, you know, (laughs) (laughs) 
And and I really couldn't believe my eyes because I hadn't seen a world-class juggler after having learned how to juggle. Now I knew what I was looking at. And so I had a whole list of questions and I, I went and found him at halftime. And uh, he came out and he was so nice to me. And he answered all of my questions. And then a guy came out and started doing rope twirling and rope spinning. And I couldn't believe my eyes then either. I thought, if this guy isn't the best rope spinner in the entire world, I don't know who is. And as it turned out, he pretty much was the best rope spinner in the whole world. It was Vince Bruce. And and I was really lucky because I got to, to see both of those guys very, very early on after I learned how to juggle. And Barrett was incredibly nice. Uh, years later, we became buddies. I reminded him of that, and he didn't even remember it, but uh, but he said, was I nice? And I was like, you were so nice to me. So that helped a lot. It was very encouraging. Yeah, I saw that same tour. He was one of the first professionals I saw as well. I was I had been juggling for a few years, but you're right. He came out in the very beginning, and I almost missed him because we were running a little bit late, once again thinking he'd be the halftime act. Yeah. So good. So all-American, so clean, so good movement, great tricks. A yeah, really I underrated juggler. Uh, I loved his club juggling. Uh, it was so good, and I really liked how he used the whole court. But I didn't see Vince Bruce. The, the, the act with him was a, na- a man named Martin Lamberti, who was also a juggler. But at the, in that show, he was doing hand balancing, and he balanced on his head while spinning hoops on his arms and legs. And I oh, talked cool. with him afterwards, but I didn't get to see Barrett, so uh, I didn't get to meet him for a few more years. Okay. This was before uh, Barrett was with the Gizmo guys. He was doing solo tours then. Yeah, and he was one of the original members uh, before Air Jazz was Air Jazz. They were the Magnificent Material Movers. And it was Peter Davison, Keziah Tannenbaum, and Barrett Felker. Yeah, what a combination, huh? Yeah, then he went out to do solo and then uh, eventually teamed up with Alan Jacobs and had a very long career with the Gizmo guys. I hear he's now retired. That he's, uh, yeah. of course, a lot of us are retired now, but uh, I think he retired before our current situation. Now, there was another yeah. performer who came to perform at your college. Now, you mm-hmm. missed seeing him, but you hung out with him afterwards. Who was the performer that you missed because you had to work? Here's a little story. I, I, instead of paying my college tuition, I bought juggling props. <laughs> okay, good, good choice. I was out of college for a semester during my senior year. My university was at, it was in my hometown. And so I lived at home when I went to college. But my parents said, if you're not working full time and you're not going to school full time, then you can't live here. So I had to get a job and I got a job as a waiter and we was a private club and we did things like weddings and stuff at night. That was the semester Robert Nelson, the butterfly man was gonna perform at my university. And if I had blown off work, and lost my job, I was going to get kicked out of the house. So I couldn't go to the show, but one of my friends went. And he found out where the committee who hired Robert uh, was taking him after. It was a local pizza place. And so he came and got me. (laughs) And we went there, uninvited, into a small private room with about eight people sitting at a table. And Robert was there. And those people did not want us in there at all. <laughs> and there was just no way I was leaving. <laughs> right. Because I was a juggler and he was a juggler and we were going to talk. And they were trying to get him to play drinking games and things like that. And I was talking with him and they were just giving me the hate there. But it did not deter me at all. And he turned to me and said, go upstairs, go into the parking lot. I'll meet you in a, I'll meet you in a few minutes. And he told the people that he had two or three hours to drive to the next gig. And it was late at night. And thank you very much. And he left. And he came and he met me in the parking lot of the pizza joint in the middle of the night and answered every single one of my questions about being a juggler. And he went into his car and he took out his props and he was showing me club swinging and he was talking to me about comedy and the life and street performing and he talked to me for a long, long time. And he really did have a, a three-hour drive to the next gig. So I always remembered that Robert was so kind. And he really he really went out of his way for me. And I, I wrote to him. And he wrote me like a six-page letter back answering more of my questions. And said, sorry that I, it took a while, but my dad just died. Even in that situation, he went so far out of his way. And I never forgot that. He was so great to me. 
you remember any of the advice or any of the, the wisdom he passed along in those moments? I'm sure <laughs> I incorporated most of it into my life, but uh, it was, um, <laughs> you know, I probably still have the letter he wrote. I'm pretty sure, but uh, but no, it was just the fact that he took the time to answer all those questions. And, and he, he, he wanted to show me club swinging. He loved club swinging. So he's like, yeah, you got to do this and that. And that. But uh, yeah. I don't remember all the details, but I do remember that he certainly went out of his way to help me. I did a whole bunch of juggles. Well, like you said, Barrett Felker, Robert Nelson. I mean, you certainly sure. saw some of the best coming up. Anthony Gatto, Michael Davis. And yeah. so you're thinking about becoming a juggler. You're, you're living in, in Lafayette. Uh, why does anybody stay in Lafayette if it's so hot and miserable? Are, you, are your, Is the rest of your family still there or did they get out as well? Uh, a lot of, of them are still there and in the area, South Louisiana. It's a fun place to live. There's great food. There's great people. Uh, Lafayette is a small city. It's not a small town. There's still things to do. And really, um, there are good reasons to stay. And a lot of people do visit the area. It's called Acadiana, Cajun country. And a lot of people go for the, the, the food and the music. And home is home. So there's things that I still miss about it. And yeah, so, so a lot of them are still there. But I did decide that I wanted to be a professional juggler. I knew that probably couldn't make it as a professional juggler in, in Lafayette. So I decided that there were jugglers that I knew who lived in New Orleans. There was a scene. There was, there was work for a variety acts in New Orleans. And I decided after I graduated that I'd, uh, I'd move there. I remember telling my mother, I'm going to be a juggler. And we were in the kitchen and she looked at me and said, you can't do this. People don't do this. And I said, I know people who do this. And she said, those are weird people. <laughs> and at that point, I was an adult. I figured I, she couldn't stop me. So that was what I did. I moved to New Orleans in uh, April of 1986 and became a, a full-time juggler. And how did you put your act together? I mean, you learned to juggle. You know, how did you develop other skills and did someone help you put the act together? Or was it just the advice you got, like from Robert Nelson? How did you start out? Before I was, a, a, you know, a full-time professional, I would just get in the car and drive to any little festival in our area and just try it. You know, I had an idea. I'd seen some jugglers on the NACA tour. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure if you remember Robert York. He was a comedy juggler. Yeah, the, he was a cowboy, had a mustache. Yeah, handlebar mustache. Now, yeah. Robert came through my college a couple of times, and he had come through comedy clubs in the area, and he was very nice to me, too. So, you know, uh, Edward Jackman had come through uh, on the college tour, and also had worked some comedy clubs. So I had an idea of basically <laughs> what a juggling show pretty much looked like. And I had gone to IJA conventions and seen other street acts in New Orleans and places like that. What were your skills like at that time? Did you, were you like juggling clubs and other, other props? What, what was your skills? They were actually pretty good because I was practicing a lot. I would do a couple of hours every day. And on the weekends, I do about five hours a day. Technically I was, uh, I was pretty good. <laughs> Better than I am now, but, uh, but it wasn't really, that wasn't really the problem. It was there's knowing how to do a trick and knowing how to perform in front of an audience. And way before I was uh, a juggler, I was always comfortable in front of audiences doing like public speaking and things like that. Because when I was in high school, I did student government and uh, I was president of my student body and I would travel all over the country doing seminars and things like that. It wasn't about getting laughs, but I liked being up in front of an audience. Then uh, then I learned how to juggle and I decided I wanted to learn how to entertain an audience. And, you know, you do a lot of shows and you figure out what's not working because everybody turns around and leaves. So Yeah, especially on the street, huh? You got to catch them quick and keep their attention. Yeah, sure. It was like nobody was polite on the street. You had to you had to hold them. And if they turned around and left, then you didn't do your job. So you figure out what works and what doesn't. And I used to have 11 bits in my street show. And when I cut it to like five, I double my hat because uh, it was, I didn't need all the, all the juggling that I had in there. I just needed it to be entertaining. You figure it out. And I get good advice from other, other acts. One guy that I saw in New Orleans, I saw how he did it more than differently, uh, more than than what he did. And just by watching this guy do his show one or two times without changing one word of what I said or any of the tricks that I did, 
I double my hat because <laughs> I just changed the focus. Uh, his name was Paul Morocco, and he was he's part of a group called Olay. Yeah. I don't know if you were there. Yeah, they're, they're, they're flamenco guitar players. They're very good. Yeah. Well, this was way before he was with Olay, and uh, he would perform in New Orleans. And I just saw the way that he focused on the audience, and it made all the difference in the world. Just changing that, like I said, uh, I more than doubled my, my hat uh, because, you know, it made a big difference when you focus on the audience. So they, they can feel it. And when you first got to New Orleans, was it easy easy to start doing shows? What was your first experience out there like? Oh, it's very difficult because I used to drive to these little festivals in, in South Louisiana. And if you showed up and you had juggling stuff, everybody would just come around. And it was like such a different thing. But in New Orleans, it was nothing different. And you really had to get a crowd and to keep a crowd. And it was, it was very difficult. But uh, sometimes... There were so many people down there that uh, you'd actually get to do a few shows. But I had garbage trucks drive through my shows. I'd have drunk people coming in, kicking all my stuff. It was just a mess sometimes. And there would be brass bands that would set, set up next to me and start playing in the middle of my show. And you can't have an entire brass band playing during your show right next to you and have it work. So it's a lot of frustrations, but it, it made me tougher and try harder. Yeah. The other cool thing about Jackson Square, where I did it in the French Quarter, was that most people who came to town would come through Jackson Square. And I ended up meeting a, a bunch of jugglers and performers who had just come to see who was, who was down there. I had only been doing it about a month or so when a guy came up to me after my show and said, hey, uh, my name is Bobby Jewell. You know who I am? And I was like, are you a hockey player? <laughs> no, I was a, a juggler for decades, you know, all over Europe and, and all over America in the 40s and 50s and 60s. So we started writing to each other and he was so nice to me. And I found out the guy's a legend. So that was really nice. One of the other cool things was that when I was um, doing a show, it was like fourth or fifth show of the day and I was about to go home. I was like, oh, I'm already sweaty. I think I'll do one more show. So I did this small show that turned out okay. And I was getting paid and everybody paid me. And then I saw a $5 bill go in my hat and I looked up. It was Michael Davis. Oh. <laughs> my exact words were, oh my God, it's you. <laughs> That's how cool I was. And I started shaking. I was so nervous. And I was like, what are you doing here? And he's like, oh, well, you know, I have this show here tonight. Uh, it's a corporate event. And uh, I got to tell you, I, I really think you're very funny. And I was, that was like, you know, one of the biggest compliments in the world. And he was like, well, what are you doing now? And I was like, uh, nothing. <laughs> he goes, you know where any uh, place to get seafood around here is? And we're in the middle of the French Quarter. So there's only about 500 places. There was one right down the street. And he goes, you want to have dinner with me? And I was like, yeah, let's go. So he took me to dinner and was incredibly kind. He was very complimentary. And uh, he, he was uh, more than healthy. He actually gave me his personal phone number and his manager's phone number and said, yeah, you need a manager. <laughs> Give me a call. You know, I'd only been at it about a, a year and a half, probably. Although I was thrilled that he, he thought I was so good and was willing to help me. I was really actually intimidated and I, I just was kind of too scared to call the guy. It was probably a huge mistake, but uh, I didn't feel I was very ready for, for the next level at that point. But um, it was one of the highlights uh, of my life, really, that the guy, one of the guys that I started juggling because came and saw me and, and liked what he saw and was so nice. So. And uh, Bobby Jewell is, is still alive. I talked to Bobby just last month, I believe. We were yeah. friends as well, and I call him every once in a while, check in. He's, He's in his uh, 94. 95. 94, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I was actually wondering about if he was still around, so I, I contacted uh, David Kane uh, mm -hmm. uh, with the, the Juggling Museum, and I said, do you know if Bobby's still alive? And he said, well, he was last week, because uh, he talks to him also. So. <laughs> yeah, he won't come on the podcast. He has great stories. He's always, he's a very humble guy, and he's like, oh, no one wants to hear about me. And I'm like, yeah, they do, Bobby, but... Uh... They do, because he told me some great stories. Also, there was this um, Portuguese juggler who used to work in Jackson Square named Elio, and he had a heavy accent. And one day, Elio comes up to me and says, hey, this is Pau. 
And he points to this kind of roly-poly gentleman. And I said, pal? And the guy says, Paul, because <laughs> Elio couldn't say Paul. He could only say pal. And he goes, yeah, my name's Paul, Paul Bachman. People call me Mr. B. And I'm like, well, great. And Elio says, Paul juggles, Paul juggles. So I give him my three silicone balls, and he just starts going at it with this incredible juggling. I could barely believe my eyes. So that was how I met Paul Bachman originally. And uh, we became friends, and we used to write to each other. And uh, and he was really helpful to me because he, he sent me all kinds of juggling videos. And, you know, he had a great collection. So uh, that was always fun, uh, remembering how I met Paul Bachman. <laughs> well, a lot of people have great stories about Paul Bachman because he was a great man. Yeah, yeah, great juggler and even a more nice uh, man. Than, than, so that was... I miss Paul. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, wonderful fella. One day when I was uh, performing in Jackson Square, uh, the guy who ran that little tiny circus that came to my college, the Royal Lichtenstein Circus, he came and watched my act. And afterwards he said, you know, all these other guys look like they just got out of bed. Uh, I appreciate the fact that you dress up and you look like a performer. And he said, your act is really good. And uh, you, would you like to travel with me for a year? And I was very, you know, I felt complimented because he was one of the original acts that I'd seen that uh, I started juggling because. Uh, then he said that there was no money involved with <laughs> traveling <laughs> with him for a year. And I said, look, I, I got to pay my bills. So uh, thank you. But uh, but no, thanks. But, I, you know, I felt good about that because two out of the three guys that I started because ended up seeing me in Jackson Square and saying nice things about me. So that made me feel good. Well, let's talk about this uh, talent contest you entered. Was this around the time that you did this uh, Jesters, Jammers and Jugglers, I guess, was the name of the club? And it was a big talent contest. The club was called Cowboys. It was in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, which was about 50 miles away from where I lived. And I heard on the radio they were having this ta talent show, Jesters, Jammers, and Jugglers. And I'm convinced that the only reason they put Juggler in there was because it started out with a J. It was a, a contest that was over seven weeks. There were six weeks of preliminaries. And uh, then the finals, which was the first and second place of all the people who had won during the first six weeks. And I went the first week just to watch, and everybody was terrible. So I went, I'm going to compete the second week. And when I went back the next week, everybody was really good. They had all sat out the first week, and it was almost all singers, and there were some really good ones. And I was warming up backstage, and the guy who owned the club looked at me and said, you know, you're really good, but these people will not appreciate you. And I looked at him, and I said, I'm going to make them <laughs> he, started, he started laughing and uh i went out there and i made them and i won first prize that night which meant i got to come back for the finals six weeks later and i came back and i won the whole thing so i made them and uh it was the first prize of a trip to jamaica uh, at a resort hotel for a whole week and uh that's the first time i ever left the country was because i juggled in a a little contest in Baton Rouge and won the whole thing. One person or they send two people or just one ticket for you? Or did you get to go with somebody? It was a trip for two. So I got to take, take one of my friends and uh, it was one of the biggest culture shocks of my life because this <laughs> is early 80s. Right. And I, I had never been anywhere. <laughs> and I'm in another country where as we're, as we're coming down the steps from the airplane, people are trying to sell us drugs. <laughs> the guys who were unloading the luggage were trying to sell us drugs. <laughs> and when we got out of the airport and into the van that was taking us to the hotel, people surrounded the, the van and were banging on the windows trying to sell us drugs. So, so I'd never been through anything like that in my life. But well, you know, Jamaica was... Very beautiful, and I had a great time. You want to be polite, so did you buy some drugs, or? No, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, because there were also huge, huge signs everywhere saying buying drugs is illegal, and right. you're going to go to jail. And I wasn't in the market, and I certainly didn't want to be in the Jamaican jail. So, But, you know, I snorkeled and swam around, and I juggled on the beach. And a lot of times the people who were selling things on the beach, 
it wouldn't let you take that picture unless you paid them. And because I was juggling and they liked that, they let me take their pictures for, for no, no fee. So that was cool. Now let's go back to New Orleans a little bit. You worked with a partner for a while. Uh, mm-hmm. Is that something you thought, well, I'll team up with somebody? Why did you work with a partner and why didn't that stick? Why did you go back to doing a solo act? Well, originally, I didn't have my show that much together. And I ran into a guy who uh, lived there. He had gone to Tulane University and graduated, and he unicycled and juggled, and he was about my age. He didn't really have a show either. And so rather than getting ignored by the audience, we decided that if they were going to ignore us because we were terrible, uh, we could at least talk to each other during the show. (laughs) So we put together uh, a show together that, that we could have a beginning, a middle, and an end. We would each do solo stuff, and then we'd pass clubs and do some jokes, and then he'd get on his unicycle, and we'd pass some more clubs and and finish up. It was good to have somebody to talk to and while we were being ignored, but we had vastly different styles. He dressed completely different than me. He was very uh, random in the things that he would try, and I never really knew what he was going to (laughs) do. I was more of a guy who wanted to plan things out, and because we looked so different, and we acted so different. It wasn't the best uh, combination. So uh, we decided to just each try and develop a solo act. And he developed an interesting act. What was his name and what kind of acts does he do? Uh, at the time, he was just a regular juggler guy. And, but he was pretty much a genius IQ. His name is David Ross Deicher, And some people know him as the zip code man. But uh, around 1990, 91, he moved to Boulder. And he developed a zip code act where he memorized about 50,000 zip codes. And if you tell him where you're from, he'll tell you your zip code. Or if you tell him your zip code, he can tell you where you're from. And then he gets a bunch of people out of the crowd and puts them on a map where they tell him that uh, their zip code is. And then he tells stories involving all these places with jokes and everything. So it's a, it's a memory act. And uh, he does some juggling in there too. And he's kind of an institution in Boulder been there uh, close to 30 years, I guess. It's an, he's got an amazing mind. When you're in uh, New Orleans, what are the police like? Do they leave you alone? Do they hassle you? What's the whole, what was the scene like at the time? It, it was kind of a love-hate thing going on there because uh, in one sense, they would always put the street performers' photos on all the brochures and they would put them on the videos, the tourist videos, and show everybody having a good time with the street performers in Jackson Square and stuff. Yeah. Uh, but at the same time, some of the cops didn't like us for one reason or another. Some people felt that we didn't do anything and we were making money as far as they could tell. And some of the shop owners thought people that we were entertaining would have been in their shops otherwise, not knowing that we were dry, actually drawing people to the area. So they would have the cops run us off or in a lot of cases, just arrest the, the performers. And uh, this was one of the most blatant examples of white privilege because there were break dancers and there were other acts of various ethnicities and they would always get arrested and I wouldn't because <laughs> I'm a white guy. They might run me off, but they would do things like uh, take the equipment of the break dancers and they would arrest them and throw them in the jail over the weekend. And then when it would go to court, they would drop the charges but they still had their equipment. They also had to spend the weekend in jail. And there were a couple of very vindictive policemen who said, I don't care what the judge says, I'm gonna throw you in jail if I saw you, or if I see you again. So they had to deal with that a lot. And I got chased off a few times from shop owners and stuff, but I never had to go to jail. And uh, and they did. And, and these guys were incredible. They actually, you know, headline shows in Vegas. They traveled all over the world, but they were from New Orleans and they liked living there and working there. And they had a really, really great show. They're still there today after all these years, just having these giant, incredible shows. And they were hassled by the cops a lot. I was not. Yeah, I saw them across the street from Jackson Square. They had a kind of a huge little, almost like a little amphitheater and they'd get massive crowds, massive crowds. That's my, that's my old office. That, that spot there, that was your office? Yeah, because I started in Jackson Square. I wanted a bigger crowd, and that's where you would go if you had a much longer show. It was very difficult to work that spot, but there was a mime named Lee Ross from 
think it was from New York, who, who came to town and figured out how to work that spot. If you could do a, a long opening and fill it up, then you could do a, a great big show. And he was the one who, who figured out how to do that. So uh, after we saw how he did it, we all started going across the street and trying to do much longer shows. And it would be several hundred people at once. So. And uh, what kind of what kind of tips did you get, if you don't mind me asking? What was a big hat during that time? Across the street at the, uh, we called it the fountain because it used to have a fountain there, even though it wasn't there anymore. If you did a 45-minute show, you could make about $150 at that time. This is in the mid to late 80s. Yeah. And you know, depends. The, the breakdancers made more because there were more guys and they had, they had the volume of the, the music and everything like that. In Jackson Square, it was probably 40 to $80. And that meant the weather had to be good. And it wasn't, in, it wasn't raining and it wasn't insanely hot. So there were a lot of times during the year where audience would just melt in front of your eyes. And one time you got uh, injured during a show. Was that at that spot across the street? Or what happened when you got injured? Oh, one time I, was, I decided to go out in the middle of the week and do a show. Because basically it was Friday in the evening and noon until dark on Saturday and Sunday. That was the scene. That's when everybody was around. And during the week, there was almost nobody there. So one day I decided I'm in the mood. I go to do a show and I got a really good one going. And I'm standing on a little pole of about two feet where I usually just yell, hey, it's a show and everything. And I'm in the middle of it and it's going really well. And I think this is going to be great. And I step down from the pole and I sprain my ankle really badly. And I thought for a millisecond, maybe I can finish this show. <laughs> and I look down and I'm in the worst pain. And my my ankle looked like looks like it has a softball on it. It's so swollen. And I couldn't move. I had to tell the audience, folks, I've hurt myself and I cannot continue. If you liked anything you saw, there's my hat over there. Put some money on it. <laughs> you got to pass the hat no matter what. That's... But I, I can't even move. And I could hear people saying, I bet he does this every show. <laughs> and then other people knew I was hurt. And they came and they gathered all my equipment up. And then out of the audience, a woman, young woman with a backpack, pulls out this spray and starts spraying my ankle with cold spray. And she wraps it in a uh, ace bandage. And she says, I'm a doctor from Germany. Uh, you might have broken your ankle. You should go get it x-rayed. And she just left. And I didn't find out her name. And I couldn't even thank her, but I couldn't believe it. She just took care of me right then. And the crowd had to put me in a cab. And I had to go home and just crawl into bed and wait for my roommate. The worst thing about it was I had a theater show in 10 days. And I couldn't even walk. And this was my big chance to get a videotape in a nice theater. And for eight days, I could barely walk. And on day nine... I could walk, and on the 10th day, I did the show, and if you saw the video, you could never even tell that I was injured, and it was like a miracle. And that tape, that videotape, is the one that my original agent sent to the cruise lines and got me my first ship gig. So it was close. It almost didn't happen. Hey, before we get to the cruise stuff, which was the main portion of your career, tell me about this mm -hmm. trip you took to Europe with the, the famous uh, comedy juggler David Diebel. How'd you meet David? And... How'd you guys end up in Europe together? Uh, I met David on a plane going to an IJA convention when he was 15, and I was probably 21, 22. And we were good friends. And when he finished uh, high school, he, he wanted to go to Europe. And I wanted to go to Europe because it would get so hot in New Orleans in the summer, and a lot of the acts would go to Europe and perform. So he said, well, why don't we go together? So I moved to Long Beach and probably in the spring and we were supposed to put a show together so that we could do in Europe but we didn't we just goofed around and had a lot of fun <laughs> right we still went to Europe we planned to go uh like in June and there was a Swiss juggling convention going on early June and we were going to go to that and then I figured I'm going to stay as long as I can maybe end up with the uh, European juggling convention in September and David had never really been away from home. We had all these adventures. We, he had taken one year of German in high school and he saved us so many times with that because we were in Germany and I didn't speak the language. I couldn't read the signs and uh, it was just beautiful. And I, I started doing some shows in Munich, which was very easy to get a crowd, but I, I learned that my act was very verbal and very American. So they couldn't understand a word I was saying. 
So I was just bombing over and over. But even when I'd bomb, I'd make about 20 or 30 bucks. So I'd bomb two or three times and I had enough money to uh, pay for the hotel and buy my food and stuff. And David didn't even want to, to juggle at that point or perform. But we were having a, a really good time. And uh, I'll tell you, the first show I did, right before I went to Europe, I had to do a lot of street shows in New Orleans. And I was just at my peak. I was so good. I was super sharp. And before I went to do my first show in Munich, a woman starts screaming, Oh my God, it's you! I just saw you on Royal Street two weeks ago. Oh my God. And I couldn't believe it. And she couldn't either. So I do my first show. I get like two laughs the entire show. I bombed so horrible, horribly. She came up to me and she put some money in my hat and she said, you get better every time I see you. (laughs) Which is in her mind, she was still so stunned that she had seen me all the way around the world. Uh, and was so good then that she couldn't even comprehend the fact that she had just seen me bomb horribly. You always say compliments gracefully. You're like, well, thank you. <laughs> you never say, well, that was, I could do much better than that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> You're a fan. She's a lifelong fan. So you get back from Europe. David left before you and you stayed there. Let's talk about how you got on the cruise ships and uh, let's move into that portion of your career because as you say, that's been sort of the, the last 20 or 30 years you've been a cruise ship performer. How'd you get on the ships? When I used to work in New Orleans, every once in a while, a a really phenomenal act named Michael James uh, would come through town and he'd work in New Orleans for a while. Michael unicycled, he did the freestanding ladder and he was a great juggler too. And we became buddies. And one day, Michael was in Bayside in Miami, it's a mall, doing a street show for hundreds of people. And this ship agent walked by and saw him and said, you know, I could get you a lot of work on cruise ships. And Michael was like, really? And he's like, yes, I can. And I think he booked Michael 45 weeks that first year. Wow, right. Well, Michael's a phenomenal act. He's a thrill act, and you always think he's gonna die right in front of your face. And uh, he's just, the skill level's amazing. So Michael started doing ships, and he told his agent, uh, you know, I have a buddy that I know could do this. And uh, it was like, oh, you sure? And he was like, yeah, yeah, I'm positive. So uh, I took that tape that was from the, the theater show. It was a new vaudeville festival in the, uh, a theater in the French Quarter. And I sent it to him and he looked at it and it was a really good tape. And he still didn't, didn't really want to give me a shot. So Michael said, look, I, I know this guy can do it. Uh, give, him a, give him a chance. So they gave me a couple of weeks on a ship out of Fort Lauderdale. And it was very different than the street, but I survived. It wasn't like they were great, but it, it wasn't bad either. And I, I just knew I had to make some adjustments to, to the, the show. And so he got me some more work and I, I started getting very used to the ship theaters and how things work. What were some of the adjustments you had to make? One of the strangest things was I was used to seeing every single audience member in bright sunlight. I could see every expression of everybody's face. And it just was so strange that people would be in the dark and I didn't really know if they were out there or if they were heading for the exit. So I had to get used to the theater lights and the fact that I couldn't see everybody. Also, the ceilings on ship uh, theaters back then were pretty low. So I had to adjust that, that I still had to be able to, to do the, the shows and not be able to throw things as high as I'd like. It also became apparent that I didn't need to keep the pace of a street show. Because right. on the street, if you lag for a second, they turn around and leave. So my pace was really, really, really fast. It was like a tornado. And I had to come to the conclusion that these people were actually there to see me. They weren't stumbling upon me. My picture was on the marquee. The showtime was set. They wanted to see me, and they weren't going to run for the exit if I just paused a little bit. I slowed down. I took some time, and uh, my timing changed, and I'd pause for laughs. And the other thing is I, I added material that involved the cruise experience about islands and ports and things on the ship and things they were seeing and doing, which uh, gave me more material. And how many cruises would you say you've done now? I mean, what year would you start? And you were basically doing it right up until the, the recent virus. So how many years has that been and how many cruises? It was 
uh, 29 and a half years. So it's been thousands of cruises on hundreds of ships. And it's, it's taken me all over the world, places I, I never thought I'd get to go. <laughs> and, you know, some people describe working on a ship, they say it's the nicest prison I've ever been in <laughs> because their particular personality isn't suited to the, the situation. But as soon as I got on, I thought, this is great. <laughs> the schedule's pretty easy. And uh, I enjoy... Uh, going to these different places, seeing things. When I was young, way before I knew how to juggle, I had decided I wanted to see tropical islands all over the world. This is before I knew how to juggle, so I, I didn't know it was gonna work out that way. But uh, it sure did. What were some of your favorite places? What places did you always go, oh, I'm going here, that you looked yeah. forward to? Well, um, Bermuda is a really nice cruise, because yeah. most, uh, yeah. most ports, you get there in the morning and you leave in the afternoon and you head on to another one. The Bermuda cruises, you sail to, New, uh, to Bermuda, usually from New York or Philadelphia, and you, you stay there for days, and uh, then you sail back. It takes a day and a half to get there and a day and a half to get back, so you're there for several days. So you do overnights, and that's unusual. But um, Hawaii was a place I always wanted to see, and I, I think it's one of the most beautiful places in the world. Uh, it's, just, it's just so gorgeous. The other thing about it is it's America. You know, the money was the same, the cell phones worked, everything like that, and you you still get to see this uh, gorgeous land. Yeah, Hawaii, like you say, Bermuda, is, well, I did that a couple of times. It was a wonderful cruise because, yeah, you're there three or four days. The ship's right there, like in the downtown area. It's a, it's a fun place to go. I, I got to go to Tahiti. I always wanted to go there. Uh, Japan. I still haven't been to Australia. I would love to go to Australia, though. And uh, who are some of the performers you work with? Because obviously they have a lot of other... Not many jugglers, of course, because you, you fill the role of the juggler on the ship. But what kind of performers uh, and celebrities did you get to meet on the ships? Uh, not a whole lot of celebrities, but I, I did meet Frankie Avalon once and uh, one of the guys from the Monkees and things like that. But th th it kind of amazed me the level of talent from the other entertainers, the singers, the comedians, uh, ventriloquists and uh, other variety acts. The level is really great. I, I became friends with uh, Jay Johnson, the ventriloquist. Mm -hmm. Yeah, great ventriloquist, yeah. Right, Ron Lucas. Another great ventriloquist, yeah. A whole bunch of stand-up comics, really funny, and funny in a million different ways. Sometimes I'm at their shows watching them and I'm thinking, I can't believe I know this guy, <laughs> he's great. So, and, and most of the other acts were really nice too, so that was always a, one of the biggest bonuses for yeah. me. Yeah, that's, that's, who you, that's who you hang out with, like you try to yeah. If you're there by yourself, you buddy up with the other performers. It's just natural. There's usually two or three other acts, and you're in the same situation. So you have dinner together, you tell stories and things like that. You know how when you get together with other acts, you tell stories about things that go wrong and travels and all this, sure. and everybody always wants to, to do, uh, I can top that. <laughs> right. Well, here's one that I had the, the pleasure of saying, I can top that. One of my buddies is a comedian, and George was telling me one time after a really good show, he was in the nightclub and a young woman came up to him and she said, Hey, you were the comedian, right? And he's like, yeah. And she said, let me ask you something. Are you single? And he said, yes, I am. And she said, cause my mother is single. And I think you guys have really hit it off. <laughs> and he said, Oh God, it was like a knife through my heart. <laughs> and I said, George, I can top that. I had just finished my show and it had gone really well. And I was on the way back to my cabin. And in a doorway, leaning seductively, was a very beautiful passenger who looked at me and said, oh, my God, it's you. You were so great tonight. And I said, thanks. And she said, my grandmother thinks you're so hot. <laughs> Not the compliment I wanted, but it, was, it, just, it just hit me so funny. My grandmother thinks you're so hot. Well, I mean, you, were, you weren't that old. Well, I think young people see older people and they sometimes overestimate our age. That's true. But, but I got to tell you, this happened years ago when I wasn't that old. <laughs> I was closer to her age than her grandmother's age. So, uh, <laughs> But you did yeah. get lucky on the ships because, I mean, not, I'm going to say you got lucky, but that's where you met your wife. So, uh, Actually, it is. Tell me that story. How did you meet your wife? 
Uh, in the early 90s, I was uh, aboard a celebrity cruise line ship called the Horizon. I lived in New Orleans, and uh, my wife, present wife, uh, was from Los Angeles, and she had taken uh, one of her friends on a cruise. We met, and we started getting along really well, so we stayed in touch after the cruise. She still lived in Los Angeles, and I still lived in New Orleans, so we'd only see each other a few times a year. Uh, sometimes I would get ship gigs out of uh, Los Angeles, so she would come and get me on the turnaround days, and every once in a while she could visit New Orleans. And the earthquake of 94, I think that's the Northridge earthquake. Mm -hmm. I lived there in, in 94, yeah. Uh, yeah, it pretty much destroyed everything she had, and so uh, she moved to New Orleans at that point, and uh, we've been together ever since, so... Nice. And she's very, she's, I don't want to say unusual, but when I thought I'd picture Billy's wife, I thought, oh, she's going to be like a little Southern Belle type. Uh, and you, you're in an interracial relationship. Has that been difficult or is that something that just became a costume and it's, it's not a big deal? Or what was that experience like, not knowing that, that world myself? People are sometimes surprised when they see us. We get the whole gamut of reactions. Some people are offended for some reason that we that we love each other, <laughs> but right. uh, we try to make Silly it their people. problem, not ours. Yeah, exactly. Small-minded people. Yeah. Yeah, and and sometimes there are people who meet me before they meet her, and then when they meet her, they have a totally different reaction. It certainly opened my eyes to the level of. Uh, of racism and prejudice that is out there that a lot of people, I guess, would deny that it's even happening, but uh, it's just too obvious. So, yeah. uh, but there are plenty of people who have no problem with it. And so you've been married, what, like how many years you've been married now? Well, we, we didn't get married until 2005, but okay. uh, we've been together since uh, the early 90s. We got married in Key West, which was a, a great place to get. It's also one of my other favorite ports, by the way. Key West. There's a lot to do, a lot to see. And I like I really like the the vibe of Key West. It's very much like the French Quarter in New Orleans. Yeah, it's great food, a lot of artists there and uh just kind of a almost anything goes attitude. I saw a t shirt once that said, Key West where weird people turned pro and I thought I thought that's funny. That's a that's a cool, another cool place and it is the of course the Hemingway House and the Six Toed Cats and and plenty to drink. Over the years, I've, I've been to all the big tourist sites in, in Key West. It really is one of my uh, favorite, uh, favorite places. I'll tell you this quick story. Sure. Since sure. We, had, we had gotten married, we'd never been to Key West uh, other than on ships. And we decided to drive down there. Uh, so we did to see the sunset at Mallory Square. And as soon as we were sitting down there, a couple of guys walk up with uh, suitcases. They open up and one of them pulls out seven balls and does one of the longest runs of seven balls I'd ever seen. And he also was doing tricks with him. So when he stopped, I got up and went up and said, uh, hey, do you have a minute? And he looked at me and said, Billy Prudham. And I was like, how do you know who I am? And it turns out he was a, a Florida kid named David Furman, mm. who had set some world yeah. records and yeah. competed in the IJA. And I had read an article about him and it said that he had wanted to become a cruise ship juggler. So I had called his house, left him a message, and uh, sent him a little, uh, a little booklet on things uh, you should know if you're going to be a cruise ship entertainer. And this was just like a, a week or two later. And it just was a total coincidence that we ran into each other. And I didn't even know how he knew what I looked like. And he said he had looked me up online and seen my photo. So he was from Jacksonville and I live in Fort Lauderdale and we met up in Key West just coincidentally. And uh, it, was, it was just great to see him. I just couldn't believe it that uh, I had contacted him before and then I run into him in Key West not long after. So it was a nice coincidence. But you've had some other coincidences in your career. Can you tell me about some other people you might have run into or some strange things that happened? Sure. When I went to the European Juggling Convention in 1988, I was on the main floor and I saw this guy who was a, a one-armed juggler and he was really good. And I was sitting there watching him and we're in Bradford, England. And he looks over at me and he comes up to me and says, you're Billy Prudham. I started juggling because of you. I saw you at a karate party in New Orleans. 
my brother had taught at a karate school and they had a Christmas party and they hired me as the entertainment. And this was like a couple of years later, I run into a kid who was at that party who has one arm and turned out to be a really good juggler. It was all the way in England. So I was kind of blown away at that. I was like, that's a pretty cool coincidence. Was that uh, Casey Bamer? No, it wasn't Casey. Oh. Uh, I actually don't remember his name, but he was older than Casey and he was uh, much taller also, but he was really good. So in addition to coincidences, we're about the end of our time. And you know, you've had such a, a wonderful, varied career, but let's end by having you tell me about the weirdest gig you ever did. Uh, that's kind of easy because uh, it stands out. When I was a street performer in New Orleans, I got a call from a guy in Cherokee, Texas. And he told me this town was so small, it wasn't even on the map, but it was in the middle of Texas. If I looked in the middle of the map, that's where they were. And he said, we're having a prom and we want you to perform. And I said, at my prom, we had a band. <laughs> and he explained that the town had, had not had a dance in over 40 years. Mm, right. He wanted to put one on, but most of the people at his high school lived in a home for abandoned kids, and the guy who ran it was really, really religious and didn't believe in dancing. And he said, I've hired a DJ, and what's going to happen is a woman's going to speak to the group. There's going to be a sit-down dinner. Then you're going to do your act, and then the DJ is going to come on, and 95% of the people are going to get in a bus and go to an amusement park <laughs> because they don't believe in dancing. And I thought, this is kind of strange. I'll call you back. So I came up with all the questions I could and I called him back and he answered every one of them really perfectly. And I said, I have to do this gig. So they flew me to Austin, picked me up in a limo and took me to this little town in the middle of nowhere. And they had put signs out along the road Welcome juggler, French mm. Quarter this way, things like that. And right. I had to stay with right. the t I had to stay with the teacher because there was no hotel for a hundred miles. Uh, we went to the gym, and the entire town came. And right before the show, a storm blew up and knocked out all the electricity. And I thought I won't have to do the show. But the guy who ran the power company was was there because everybody was there and he sent a truck to fix the electricity to the gym so the lights came on the lady spoke and then i did my act and these people had never seen a live act and they were such a great crowd and it went really well and then they brought me back to the teacher's house and the next morning they opened up the only restaurant in town and they cooked us breakfast and they brought it over to his house so it was uh, very unusual and they were really really nice people and I can't believe I did it. I felt like I was in the town from Footloose where they couldn't they couldn't yeah. <laughs> you know, they couldn't dance. Yeah, John Lithgow uh, there's no dancing here. Yeah. yeah, no dancing here. But uh, when they put the DJ on, everybody got in a bus and, and left. And there were about eight people there. And none of the guys who stayed knew how to dance. So the girls danced with each other. And the guys were too cool to uh, even try, <laughs> the ones who, who had stayed. So uh, I'll always remember that gig. <laughs> and what do you think now? We're, we're you know, like I say, we're at the end. But let's talk about one more thing. Because you are a cruise ship uh, performer and you were, mm -hmm. you were uh, working when this whole thing struck. Did you get stuck on a ship? Were you on a ship when, when they got quarantined or were you at home? How did that happen when the virus hit uh, your industry? I did three ship contracts right before they shut the door. I did three ships in two weeks. As soon as I flew home, that's when they shut the door on the whole industry. So I do know people who got stuck out there and couldn't come home for a long time, but I was very lucky because I made it home. Since then, there's, there's been no movement on when we're going to actually open up again. It's an insane situation, but I was really lucky and I didn't get stuck out there. Well, I wish you the best in the future. I hope it opens up soon, but I hope it opens up safely. Yeah, me too. Because uh, a lot of the people on the ships were, were caught in a bad situation. So I hope nothing like that ever happens again. I really appreciate you taking the time to be on the podcast. You're one of those guys who I really admire in juggling because you're, you're one of those workers. You're one of those people who goes out there, does a great show, and people walk away saying, I like juggling. And that's all we can ask our fellow performers is that they represent juggling well, and you certainly do, Billy. Well, I appreciate that a lot, Dan. Thank you for the invite. 
And I, I love all your uh, all your episodes. Well, thanks for being on one of them. Thanks for being number 83. And a big thank you to Mr. Billy Prudham. You're more than welcome. Thanks, Dan. Did I say it right that time? Billy Prudham, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Thanks, Billy. And all the best to you and your wife and your family. And uh, I hope we can stay in touch and, and re renew our friendship after so many years. All right, Dan. All, all right. right. Take care. I hope you enjoy Drop Everything podcast number 83 with my special guest, Mr. Billy Prudham. Billy, I hope you're out on the seas again, cruising in no time at all. Thank you so much for being on the podcast and best wishes in your future endeavors. All right, let's thank our sponsor one more time, the IJA, International Jugglers Association. Find out about juggling, resources, and hopefully the upcoming festivals at juggle.org. All right there, go out into the world and drop everything, except when you're juggling.